Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Wes Jarena from Papa Charlie's Barbecue coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined this week by my good friend and frequent co-host, Matt Harris. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing well, sir. Thank you. Good to have you here. Uh, We have much to discuss, so let us just dive right into the news of the week. Uh, Starting with something that happens off of Culture Map, but but is certainly a popular topic of discussion. Allison Cook, the Houston Chronicle's food critic, has published her list of Houston's top 100 restaurants. Hugo Ortega's Sochi takes the top spot, followed by uh, Justin Hughes' Theodore Rex, and then, you know, sort of the usual suspects, uh, BCN, Cultivare, Cotarobata, uh Chris Shepard's UB Preserve comes in at number eight, and then on down from there. Uh, Matt, I know you've read the list. I've read the list. What do you think? It, is Allison is Allison's list an accurate representation of what's current in Houston dining? Well, sure. Uh, I mean, certainly she has devoted far more time to it than I have. Uh, although I, I feel like I feel like I, I don't know. A, you devote quite a bit of time to it. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, just thinking about just running some math. I mean, essentially, she's eating at a new place twice a week to come up with a hundred, a list of a hundred, which is is impressive. Um, there, you know, for me, for for my experiences, there were some that that stood out, but in terms of a accurate representation, uh, I, just, I really tip my hat to her. It's it's an an impressive, overwhelming undertaking. You know, you say two a week. I mean, I, I publish a column that's roughly eight, nine, maybe 10 new restaurants a month. So, you know, I feel like I've got a pretty good take on what's going on in the Houston restaurant scene. And I'm not sure that it really does reflect what's going on. And, and I wrote a whole column about this. It's become something of an, of an annual tradition. And every year I say I'm not going to do it. And every year the list comes out and I start getting text messages from people going, when are you going to do it? It's like, fine. I'm a man of the people, Matt Harris. I think, I think we all know that. Uh, this is one thing that I will not disagree with. <laughs> um, I think there were some surprising omissions and deletions from the list. Uh, no bigger, maybe, than Nobis. Uh, Martin Stayer's uh, Modern American, very progressive restaurant in the Montrose area. Uh, we actually asked the Chronicle about this. We sent Jody Schmale, Allison's editor, an email and asked her a series of questions about the list. One of them was Nobis, and, and essentially the answer was that it's a very competitive category and Allison reserves the right uh, to put it back on next year, which, of course, it's her list, it's her opinion, and that's, that's her option. Uh, but I do feel that it slights them a little bit in the sense that I have been to Nobis uh, within the last couple of weeks, I had a, a good meal there, a very good meal there. That is consistent with all of my other meals at Nobis. And I I just don't know that I recognize a Houston restaurant scene that doesn't have it as one of the 100 best restaurants. 
Um, I would, I, I, my experience is that Nobis have been the same. Um, it's one of the go-tos for us. It's one of the first restaurants when people ask me for recommendations, I'll ask them if they've been to Nobis. Um, but, um, in the context of trying to do a top 100, it certainly would be there for me. Um, probably even in the top 30. Um, but I, I, um, sort of balance that against the task of trying to come up with the list of top 100. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess that's kind of what it comes down to for me is that I, it's not just sort of quibbling. It's, it's like, I have a, an opinion about what's relevant in the Houston dining scene. And there are three French restaurants in the top 20. And I don't really feel like Houston has ever been known for its French cuisine. So I have trouble sort of balancing this version of Houston, like go eat our French food with the idea that, you know, Houston, like that, that just doesn't feel very Houston to me. And then if you're going to have three French restaurants in the top 20, then like what happened to Etoile, which drops off the list entirely, where I've always had good meals. And then, you know, and then looking at kind of there are nine barbecue joints on the list. Uh, but the pit room isn't one of them. And and we had Michael Sandbrooks on last week, and the pit room has been very successful, recognized by Texas Monthly. I know you're a fan of the pit room. It, it just, you know, I, I think if you're listening to the show, you're, you, you are among the most hardcore, like, food-obsessed Houstonians because if you're going to listen to me talk about restaurants for an hour every week, like, you're on the team. And so I think this stuff matters to people, Right. Yes, no, and and the pit room certainly. I think they they do a fantastic job um, having that level of quality inside the loop in in Houston for barbecue. Uh, yeah, you know, made with to those guys, right? Made 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 old school on an offset smoker, Tex-Mex touches that you don't see anywhere else in Houston. Obviously, uh, Valentina in Austin, two M in San Antonio. They're they're doing their version of that too. But I just, uh, well, and, and I should say, John Avia does that, right, at, uh, at El Burro and the Bull and, and now at uh, uh, Henderson and Kane. But, sure. But, you know, I think what the pit room does is pretty special and, and worthy of recognition, uh, just like Nobis is. A- and then there's the kind of stuff that you sort of shrug your shoulders at. Brennan's dropped off the list last year. It's back on this year. I don't really feel like Brennan's really gets better or worse. Right, Brennan's is Brennan's, and either you like what you, they do or you don't like what they do. But I don't understand how you could say like this is you know last year it wasn't good and this year it is like that just doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I right, I, I guess maybe part of the change with with Joe taking over for Danny was is is something that you, you could point to as is an impetus for putting them back on. But uh, fair point. You know, Brennan's to me is is kind of turtle soup and pralines and yeah, and bananas know, Foster, bananas and Foster, Snapper Pontchartrain, and jazz all that brunch. Stuff. Right now, you're making me hungry. <laughs> Sorry about that, uh, but I don't want to ignore some of the restaurants that are uh, new on the list. Obviously, Theodore Rex and, and UB Preserve entering in the top ten. Uh, that's good news for them. Uh, couple, couple others: uh, Aki Patente. Uh, both restaurants where I know we've had both had good meals. 
Uh, and it's nice to see, like, it's nice to see Danny Trace getting recognized for what he's doing at Patente. And a key got, she gave a key four stars when Gabe Medina was the chef de cuisine. She dropped it, like, which implies that it would have been top five or maybe top 10 on the list. Uh, it's changed a little bit. Gabe's not there anymore. Paul Key, the owner, is more involved now. But uh, we're going to talk about that in the restaurants of the week. So I want to—I don't want to dive too deep into that. But it, you know, there are these kind of interesting new restaurants that are cropping up. It's just—it just feels like at the top, it feels like a lot of the same names. It does. I think that, uh, and and that may be what you know, her experience was with those places. And I also think there's a little, a dynamic that may be a little bit different is, is kind of a day in day out, you know, diner um, is, and, and Nobis is a good example. It's close to where I live. I really like it. They changed their menu. It's pretty affordable. It's, it's very reasonable. It's got a great vibe. And so, you know, it's, it's an easy, I'm going to go to Nobis. And part of that is I think it's it's one of the better restaurants in Houston versus maybe trying to and, – and I get to my fair share of restaurants. I don't know if I get to 100 new restaurants a year. Um, but the sort of dine-in, dine, day-in, day-out experience versus trying to come up with the list of, of, of a top 100 may be just a slightly different dynamic, and I view it more as a day-in, day-out experience. Yeah, I well, it's yeah, it's kind of right on that line between you could go there twice a week, you can go there for a date night. You can I've seen I always feel like I see groups of friends there uh celebrating special occasions. I feel the same way about Riel. Right? Riel, another restaurant that had been in the rank section last year drops into the I I refer to them as tied for 31st. Yes. Uh, 70 restaurants tied for 31st place. <laughs> as Papa Charlie says tied for 51st. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I just, again, I had a really good dinner recently at, uh, Riel. I think Ryan Lashane, even though he's turned over kind of some of the guys that work in under him, uh, have moved on to new projects, but I, I think the quality of the, the food has remained very consistent or even gotten a little better in my experience. And so I, I just think that's, um, disrespectful is the wrong word because, there are plenty of worthy restaurants that, that are worthy of uh, recognition, but um, just doesn't really reflect the quality of what's being done there to, to not acknowledge it in a, in a better way. And, and, and Riel is, is, is a go-to. It's on that same list. Uh, my, I, I eat there often. Um, my experiences there have, have been on an upper track. I've always had good experience there. I think they're sticky toffee pudding uh, dessert is probably my favorite dessert in Houston. Uh, and it, and it has been since I first had it. Um, so at the end of the day, what I, to me, the takeaway is Houston's in the best place that it's been in the dining scene and probably forever. Right. There has never been a better time to be a diner in Houston. Uh, I say that all the time. And it's hard to rank this stuff. Uh, but I'm, I'm actively stumping for the opportunity to do it for myself. So hopefully coming in 2019, I'll, I'll have a list. And then 
you can start your own podcast and complain about my list. Won't that be exciting? Uh, yeah. How do we, so let's see when 2009. Okay. I'm ready. Let's all right. Go. Good. Um, yeah. and then, uh, all right. It's enough griping about another writer's work. Let's move on to something that I'm excited about. You, uh, I'm not a huge coffee drinker. I think of you as a pretty big coffee drinker. Very. All right. So we have a new coffee roastery coming to the Heights next year. Uh, Jacob Ibera is opening Tenfold Coffee Roasters. I don't know if I have ever met someone who is more qualified to start this kind of business. Jacob was a barista when he was a student at Texas A&M. He moved to Costa Rica, one of the great coffee-growing countries in the world. From there, he moved to Seattle, worked for Cafe Vela, a major uh, roasting operation. And then he went to Melbourne and worked in coffee procurement and training uh, for a company there. Uh, Mel- like, if, if Seattle is a coffee-obsessed city in America, Melbourne is maybe one of the most coffee-obsessed cities in the world. But he's from Houston. He, he's got married. He's got a, started a family. He's coming home and he's opening uh, this business. Matt, I, I know you've read the article. What do you think? Uh, I think uh, it's very exciting. Um, you know, I, I heard whispers about this for a while, so I've been, been expecting this um, to become public. Uh, I, you know, Jacob has um, any conversations that where his name has come up both in uh, the coffee industry and outside the coffee industry, people speak of him in, in um, very respectful terms. And um, similar to the food scene, I don't think that there's been a better time for the Houston coffee scene. Uh, it's pretty, pretty fantastic. Yeah, he really impressed me. I, I mean, I, you know, I consider David Buer to be a friend of mine and, and certainly uh, he's made a, a very good career out of making Houstonians drink better coffee. Uh, but, and so, you know, no disrespect to the people who are already doing this, Sean Marshall, Max Gonzalez, Avi Katz, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but just Jacob strikes me as someone who's going to kind of raise the game for, for all of us with what he's working on for Tenfold. And just his passion for everything that he's doing just comes through. And I, I, I think when Tenfold gets a little closer, I'll have him on the show. Uh, because I just enjoyed talking to him so much. Absolutely, uh, and I and I think the other thing too, you know, timing is is the key to a lot of these uh, things. And uh, Houston's ready to take the next step. Yeah, I think the only, you know, the one thing I asked Jacob about is how many roasteries can Houston support? Right, we have we have Greenway, we have Amaya, we have. Uh, What's Sean's that's associated that's associated with Southside? Fusion. Fusion, thank you. Uh you know Boomtown. obviously cats, Boomtown, right? So, you know, that's just off the top of my head. Java Pura, do they? Right? Java Pura does some roasting. So yeah, so uh, that's that's a half dozen without even without even trying really hard. Uh and Jacob is very optimistic about this. He thinks that um that, you know, if you look at a city like Seattle or San Francisco or New York, they support dozens of different roasteries and, and lots more coffee shops. And so, you know, he knows that business far better than I do. Uh, my comparison, he didn't, he didn't make this comparison. This is my comparison is craft breweries. 
I feel like every time a new craft brewery opens, I wonder how are they going to find a market? Like, don't we have enough locally brewed beer in this town? And yet, you know, I'll drive past Bailison on a Sunday and the patio will be full or Holler's rolling out a new beer or, or, you know, and meanwhile, like the big guys, uh, our beloved sponsor, eighth wonder, uh, St. Arnold, Buffalo Bayou are like continually expanding. So yeah, Buffalo Bayou has a very impressive ground up facility. That's yes. I went to the groundbreaking last week. Uh, yes. But, but so, but, but so my, my way of saying is if we can support dozens, if like 40 something craft breweries, I think we can support seven or eight craft coffee roasters. Agreed. All right. Uh, and then I do want to talk about Southern Smoke, Chris Shepard's annual food festival that took place over the weekend. Uh, another great year for Southern Smoke. They raised $425,000. Uh, 200000 of that will go to the National MS Society. 10000 of that will go to Hurricane Florence Relief in North Carolina. And 214000 of that will go to the, uh, the uh, Southern Smoke Emergency Fund that helps people in the restaurant business who have health problems or suffered some sort of financial difficulty, uh, helps make them whole because obviously for, for restaurant workers, uh, very few of them are salaried. If they're not working, they don't, they're not earning money. And it's a, it's a, it's a tough road to hoe. So Matt, you attended the festival. I attended the festival. Let me just, let me just throw it to you. What was your favorite thing that you ate at Southern smoke? Uh, you know, I'm going to be honest here. I'm, I'm typically pretty middle-of-the-road guy. I liked all of it. <laughs> I like That's, that's very <laughs> cheating of you. Uh, well, all right. If you won't, I will. Uh, there, I didn't have a bad... Let me just say, I did not have a bad bite of food. Yes. I did not stand in line for Aaron Franklin's brisket. Uh, that, to me, like, as good as it is, and no disrespect to Aaron... There's a lot of tasty food, and, and life is too short to stand in that line. But uh, we had Billy. I had Billy Durney on the show a couple of weeks ago from Hometown Barbecue in New York. His uh, 44 Farms grilled ribeye taco with that salsa roja and that uh, queso blanco was exceptionally delicious. And Billy just handed me a slice of the steak with just the salsa on it. That might have been even better. Uh, Daniela Sota Ines, uh who worked in Houston at places like Underbelly and Trinity, but really made her name in New York, working for Enrique Olvera at Cosme and Atla, did uh, grilled octopus skewers with a pineapple salsa that kind of blew my mind. But I got to talk about the pizza that Chris Bianco made. Uh, it, it was something I was really looking forward to. I said as much on the show a couple weeks ago. It absolutely lived up to the hype. Uh, he made the pizza with flour from Barton Springs Mill, uh, that's that's Texas grown and milled flour. Uh, I've had uh, Barton Springs on the show. He made it in an oven that was produced in Austin, and he used a, a bacon sausage that Chris Shepard made. Uh, Matt, did you did you get the chance to try Chris Bianco's Texas Wise Guy Pizza? I I did, and if there was one dish, I, I didn't eat a dish more than that pizza. I had three slices. It's more than I had anything else. And I was talking to someone else, a person in the restaurant industry who I, I won't uh, identify, but he's looking at me and he's like, why can't we have pizza like this all the time? 
right? If it's a Texas oven and Texas ingredients, like like why don't why don't we have pizza like this in Houston? Well, okay. We have pretty good pizza. We have yes. I mean there there's there's very good pizza. I mean Chris Bianco is is sort of the godfather of Napolitano pizza in, in the US. It was very, very good. I may have had more than three slices. I'm not gonna swear to that. But uh it was it was very good. And as you as you talked about, you know, Having the oven there, considering the elements, I, I was really blown away. Um, so I was also blown away uh, that ribeye taco by Willie Durney was Billy Durney, excuse me, was was absolutely delicious. Um, the smoked squash, yeah, that Vivian from, Howard did. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and the um, Jason, uh, Jason Jason Vincent from sure. from Chicago did that. Uh, Swordfish with the barbecue chickpeas. That was that was unexpectedly, like surprisingly, excellent. The oysters from Ryan Pruitt. Yeah, but I mean, you knew that was going to be good. Pesh is one of the best restaurants in New Orleans. Absolutely. You just you knew that that roasted oyster with the cream collard was going to be great, and it was. Uh, Eduardo Jordan's jerk chicken with the the peas and rice was very good. Uh, of I didn't get to try everything the Houston chef served, but I did have uh, Hugo Ortega's. Wilacoche tamale that kind of blew my mind. Tamales is, is very, very good. Um, I think in, in terms of uh, blowing my mind, the setup that, uh, uh, that the Houston Barbecue Collective did with the Trumpo. Yeah, the Agricole Hospitality Trumpo with the eight spits. Wow. It's like a steampunk-looking monstrosity. And, and it was the most Instagram thing I saw. At the whole festival, as as it should have been. So, I you know, hats off to Chris Shepard and the whole team there, um, Catherine Lott and Lindsey Brown, Kevin Floyd, all the chefs that came in. Uh, it just it it's it's uh, humbling to um, see that sort of sort of community spirit, which I think is is part of Houston, but in 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 that having. But it's, it's just such a massive event and so many moving parts. Um, so just it, it was it was great. It was a great weekend. I had the opportunity to to attend Friday and interact with a lot of the chefs. And uh, I, I'm, I'm ready for next year. I, I, I it was, it was, yeah, really, this, it was this, special. This will be hard to top. And I look forward to seeing what they do to, to achieve that. Absolutely. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Matt, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to start with something a little bit different. You and I had the opportunity to go to Kitchen 713 to try a new four-course menu that the chefs uh, James Haywood and Ross Coleman have been working on, uh, inspired by the flavors of West Africa. Uh, this is not yet available to the public, but it will be in the next week or two. Uh, I have to say, this is the second week in a row talking about uh, West African food in Houston, uh, whereas I don't think I had ever thought about this in the entire, however many however many weeks I've lived in 40 years previously, I had thought zero times about West African cuisine. 
Uh, and now it is becoming more of a thing. Apparently there are over, as I said last week, over 100,000 people of Nigerian descent living in Houston. One of the biggest West African expat communities in the country is here in Houston. And so we're starting to see it's making its influence onto mainstream food. Matt, let me just throw it to you. What did you think of Kitchen 713's take on African food? I thought it was outstanding. I, I, you know, I would say if you, you should have been going to Kitchen 713 before now. It's the first thing I would say. Yes, I should eat at Kitchen 713 more often. Houstonians should be eating at Kitchen 713 more often, but it was a good reminder of how good Kitchen 713 is. And that, that West African menu was really outstanding from start to finish. Um, I, and I, w- I would go back and have that same menu this week. I, I've got a lot of messages from people, especially the Ghanan, uh fried chicken, which was kind of a, a wet batter with like a good amount of spice to it. That that was the star, at least for me. But but they also put their spin on jollof rice, which is a, a signature Nigerian dish. And, and really that gooey duck ceviche was outstanding and very unexpected because I just think a gooey duck is, is really chewy and kind of unappealing. Uh, but they prepared it in such a way that, that it was, it had a nice texture. It had and some elements that gave it a little crunch, uh, but still was like very palatable. It, it was, it was real. It was a great way to start. I was, I was bought in immediately when taking the first bite. I'm like, all right, we're, we're going on a ride and I'm ready to go buckle up. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. And we were there with a couple of local chefs, uh, they were also very impressed. Like they, Kitchen Seven One Three invited me, and I chose to bring you because I owed you after Shell Shack. Uh, we're even. We're even. Good. Which says which says a lot. And they also invited. They invited a couple of local chefs uh, independently of of our presence. So, uh, really exciting to check in on what they were doing with that, and and just a reminder that that those are two of the most talented chefs in Houston. And I, and I don't think, you know, I, I say we don't talk about it enough. I know that, that that starts with me. Like, I need to talk about how good Kitchen 713 is more often. Uh, but it was, a, it was a really good reminder. And so uh, when that menu rolls out, I'll be sure to let people know. Right. And the, and the other thing, too, is, is, you know, James and Ross, I mean, those are great dudes. and Super nice. And, and I, I eat their... Uh, with some regularity um and they're always out in the dining room they're coming by the tables uh and it just it, the food is is worth your time and and i really whether you go for the west african menu or just go for brunch i went for brunch the other weekend or, or uh, just eat, or just go for dinner and eat that regular fried chicken it, the southern fried chicken still amazing absolutely uh yeah the only downside to this is they they were working on cocktail pairings uh and all of the drinks were either too sweet or too spicy or didn't really complement the dish. But I, you know, those guys are chefs. They're not uh, bartenders, but they, they, they like cocktails. They like spirits. I think they'll get that stuff dialed in. It's just uh, at this point, I would say skip the pairing. But uh, but the quality of the food was outstanding. And, and I'm, I'm with you. If, if, I, if I had the opportunity to go this week, I would happily eat that menu again. Uh, and then speaking of tasting menus and coordinated eating, 
I had the opportunity to go to Aki uh, last weekend to try their new omakase menu. Uh, that is a restaurant that has changed a lot since it opened uh, over a year ago. It was kind of one restaurant when Gabe Medina was the chef de cuisine there. Uh, he left in April. Paul Key, the owner, has been more involved day to day. He's there uh, at least Wednesday through Saturday at this point because those are the nights they serve the omakase menu. He brought in uh, a new sushi chef that he had worked with back in the Uchi days who's kind of leading that charge. And uh, Jill Bartolome, who had been the, the pastry chef, is now the chef de cuisine, and she's contributing both sweet and savory dishes to the menu. Um, they fed us something like 21 or two courses. I lost count. Uh, I know that it was $175. That part, that part rings clear. I have the credit card bill to prove it. Uh, Matt, I know you've been to a key quite a bit since uh, this change in leadership and, and kind of a, an evolution in its culinary direction. Uh, where does it rank for you among Houston restaurants? Is this like a, a must visit? Is it pretty good? Like, what do you think? I think it's a must visit. Uh, I think they're doing some really interesting things. Uh, it's great to, uh, you know, having Jill come over from, from, the sweet side of the savory side and seeing how the menu develops and, and just watching that evolution. Paul's back, you know, at the restaurant on a full-time basis. Uh, it's, and it's, it's not a type of food that is really in Houston otherwise. Yeah. We don't really have Filipino influenced fine dining, right? I don't, I don't know that there are very many places in the country that do, so in that in that sense alone, I think what they're doing at Aki is really special. Uh, just a couple of the dishes that that stand out. Uh, really, that did you have? Have you had the uni ceviche with the strawberries and the pickled onions? Yes. I mean, I I like uni plain. Like just give it to me, like as nigiri over rice, and I'm great. Uh, but having it in a composed dish was kind of mind blowing. Uh, kind of the sweet. Uh, the sweet and pickled elements really kind of enhance the, the uni's flavor. And uh, we did a, a piece of cod nigiri, raw cod from Canada. Uh, I don't think I've ever had cod that wasn't fried before. And so like it, it had like a firm texture and a kind of mild flavor. And it, it's kind of what you would imagine raw cod to taste like. That was outstanding. Uh, I was impressed in some sense that, it, that uh, the sushi chef Yoshi stayed away from there was no otoro. There was no salmon belly. You know, that he went in kind of a different direction. Uh, we did get one piece of uh, Japanese A5, followed by seared duck, followed by foie gras. Uh, that's a very intense uh, a very intense conclusion to that kind of menu. Uh, and also, there was a grilled squid dish that I just thought was outstanding. And, of course, uh, Jill's desserts were great. Uh, Leslie Krockenberger is there now. Uh, she's leading the beverage pairings. I've been a huge fan of Leslie's for since, I don't know, I met her when she was at Trinity uh, back in the day, and I followed her through a number of different bars and restaurants, and, and it feels like she's found a real home there, too. Um, do you remember, do you have standout dishes from your last Aki visit? Um, I do. The um, It was a little more traditional on the raw side. Um, the uh, The Unagi. Uh, which is something that uh, Yoshi is very proud of. Yeah, he so, said he's one of the only people in Houston who will take the whole eel 
and put the nail in the head and skin it and prepare it. And it's not, it, he said it's not unagi. It's a different preparation because it didn't have the barbecue. That's correct. Kind of sweetness to it, which actually I really appreciated. Yes. Yes. This, uh, that one, uh, and, and it was more interactive. It was actually their, their first omakase on the Sunday and, uh, it was all, all very, very good. And I've sent friends, um, who, uh, have a lot of experience in um, Japanese dining, and they thought it really stood up to. Yeah, yeah. Yoshi has this big personality, very engaging, like very interested in in kind of people's feedback. Did you like it? What did you think? Do you want another piece? Like all that kind of stuff. Uh, Paul was like much more low key, uh, just sort of friendly, affable guy. I I don't uh, I I'd met him once before, but don't really know him very well, uh, and I just thought he was a very gracious host. Um, it you know it's it's probably a more special um, dining experience, but the combination of the raw and and the cooked dishes, I think it's you know Kata does that very well, um, and uh, it sort of sets them apart a little bit from the traditional omakase. Um, the experience is a little more intimate and a little more interactive, and uh, it's you know it just and I think they're willing to take some chances and and the menu is really playful and and I appreciate it and and uh, we'll uh, actually am checking the calendar for my next visit. Well, and it's proving to be very popular because they're doing two seatings Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so you can you can call a key to inquire about that. Um, Anyway, Matt, that does it for the restaurants of the week. Thanks for being here. Thanks, sir. I'll be right back with Wesley Jarena. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Fall is here. School has started. Cooler temperatures are coming, even if we don't know exactly when, which means it's a great time to go back to Eighth Wonder Brewery, uh, one of my favorite local breweries. I love visiting the brewery in east downtown it's just they always have something fun going on there's always the Eatsy boys food truck serving food and of course there's eighth wonders beers which are easy drinking and always very flavorful they've been working through their series of collaborations with local houston hip-hop artists the brewery always has something really special on tap and the wonder world the backyard is always a great place to gather with friends uh, especially if you're in the middle of a, a bar crawl through the neighborhood. You can hit a couple spots, but always make sure you stop at 8th Wonder. So thank you to 8th Wonder for sponsoring the show, and here's our guest of the week. I'm joined this week by Wesley Jarena, the pit master and owner of Papa Charlie's Barbecue. Wes, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Eric. Great to see you again. Super excited to be here in the Galleria area. Uh, cool place you got here. Thank you. Wes, I mean, I've, I've known you a long time. You're the Papa Charlie's in its trailer form, uh, parked at, uh, parked at a bar near my apartment and I'm a barbecue fan. So having close by barbecue is a real, a real boon. I always like to start at the beginning and, and I know we've I've published versions of this story before, but, uh, just tell me a little bit about how you got into the world of barbecue. I'm a native Estonian. I've always been into barbecue. Um, and burnt probably my first brisket at the age of 18. Um, I heard it was an an hour per pound, so I just dumped a bunch of charcoal into a, a pit in the backyard and 
threw on a 10 pound brisket and went to sleep and figured when I got up, everything would be okay. And everything was basically boot leather. Uh, but I was kind of fascinated with the whole concept. It became a challenge at that point. And so I, I decided that I was going to be a cook being an only child, a latchkey kid. Sometimes you learn to make your own meals, whether it's a sandwich or a bowl of cereal. So I've always liked to cook. And, uh, that I went that carried that with me throughout the military, uh, had a 55 gallon offset drum cooked split in half that a lot of people are familiar with uh, and uh, always carried that around and cooked. And I don't know, I thought the food was good, but as I got older and more into it, I figured out it was probably not really that good. So that's kind of the genesis from a it was very made early with start. love, and and you were, we should say, you you spent what about a dozen years as an army ranger? Did yeah, and uh, was busy, but still, whenever we had time off, uh, we work hard, we party hard, we drank a lot of beer, and we ate a lot of food that we cooked on that fifty-five gallon drum. So, so that that was kind of what happened. And then I moved back here when I got out. I got a job in corporate America. I was at the rodeo actually, and I probably spent. At that time, which was a lot of money, $700 on an offset pit and decided that I was going to learn to get better uh, at brisket and ribs and everything else. And so I've always just had a passion for doing it. And corporate America took me to Phoenix and that passion for cooking and being pretty competitive took me into the to the competition side of the house, which is where I kind of figured out a lot about time and temperature and not just making things up and actually measuring the temperature, the internal temperature of the meat. And so I thought that I got better and I had, you know, what I felt was a modicum of success doing that. Uh, we, we've cooked everywhere from Florida to, to Missouri, to California, to Arizona, Nevada, uh, competed all across the United States. And, and that's really where I felt like I kind of honed my craft. Yeah. And then, so what made you decide to, to turn this passion, this hobby into a career? couple things, actually, and I was thinking about that on the way over here. The uh, original Barbecue Pitmasters series, season one, they had a scene from a competition in Mesquite, Nevada, and it's a pretty big competition. And in that competition was Johnny Trigg and a lot of these other big-name guys. And, and I actually followed Daniel Vaughn, the barbecue snob, on Twitter at the time. And the amount of negativity on that Twitter feed towards those guys that were wrapping their ribs and putting brown sugar in that foil. Oh, and putting slathering just everything in parquet. Parquet. And every, and it was just amazing to see what was going on. And everybody was like, these guys don't know how to cook. They don't know what they're doing. And so I said, you know, I would really like to own my own restaurant someday and, and, and show them that the competition guys, we can cook. And, you know, how I take a product from A to Z shouldn't matter to you as long as the Z product, you enjoy it when you eat it. Within a few years, everybody was at Houston hanging out with Johnny Trigg talking about how those were the best ribs they'd ever had. But um, I took left corporate America, did some government contract work, came back, tried to get a job again, couldn't get a job and said, OK, I'm just going to cook barbecue for a living. So that's kind of kind of how it went. I used to have a small cooker, a Jambo, and uh, I would cook at Firehouse Saloon and a bunch of other places, and that's pre-trailer. So that that's before I actually went whole hog, for lack of a better term, uh, into the, uh, to the business. Yeah, and then I met you when you were at, uh, it, was, it was Jackson's Watering Hole at the time. Now it's the patio at the pit room. 
but I, I mean, that's kind of where you, you started to develop a following. Did. Uh, and I, uh, part of it is, is yourself, of course. You live close. You came to try to. Actually, I took you some to the original Culture Map offices close to downtown. You did. That was three offices ago. We were, we were, I am always popular with my coworkers when food shows up. <laughs> and I was very popular with my coworkers that day because uh, the barbecue was very good. Well, that's good. I appreciate that. At that point, I was trying to figure out if I was going to try to make a living doing this. And I said, well, I'm just going to go drop it off somewhere and we'll see what happens. And so the feedback was positive, And then my trailer ended up uh, close to your house. And so you would come down, as you said, and, and sample the wares. And you actually probably wrote the, I'm almost 100% sure you wrote the first article in Houston on us. And uh, certainly that is much appreciated. Yeah, you were, you were at kind of an inflection point career-wise in the sense that it had been a hot summer, a long summer. And frankly, an outdoor bar just wasn't that appealing to people, especially in the afternoon when you were serving barbecue. Uh, but it was the start of football season, and we were, you know, I was able to give you a boost. Culture Map was able to give you a boost. Uh, that's when you really started building some momentum, I think. We did, yes. And then uh, my, my former partner, Jim Buchanan, was running an event called Q for a Cause. So we were doing, we did that two years in a row. And John Miller came down from Austin and cooked that. So there was a lot of buzz about that, and we were lucky enough to be there. And, um, you know, things just kind of steamrolled from there. After that, uh, JC showed up from the Chronicle, and 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 uh, we gathered a following, and, and you know, we just kind of kept chugging along and chugging along. I was no longer actually working other than doing barbecue, but it's, it's, it's hard work. My hat's off to those guys that are still out there on the street selling barbecue out of a trailer or, or outside of a bar because it is, it's, it's very hard work. The logistics are a, are a mother. And, um, and so we, we were blessed, and we were able to move from that trailer in Montrose to our first restaurant over on Rusk Street. Yeah, and so what was – so you had – we should be clear. You had never worked at a restaurant before. You opened the restaurant – in Edo, what, what was what was that experience like for you? Because I, you had some highs and lows. I think safe to say. I think uh, if I would, the term nightmare is probably not stern enough for what it was for me. I found out very rapidly a new appreciation for these people that have actually done it and been very successful at it. Because when it's just you and a trailer, or you and a friend helping out, or you and a kid that you're paying money to is a lot different than suddenly taking on payroll, uh, all the licensing and registrations that you have to have with the city, taxes that have to be paid, not like we weren't paying them previously, but suddenly there's a lot more taxes that go along with it. Getting a TABC license, and it was really, really overwhelming. I mean, we took off fast and furious. Um, we had a lot of success, but in the backside, you know, I was really struggling to keep it all together. It was, it was, a, it was a real challenge for me. It's, I probably wasn't the right person to be cooking and running a restaurant. Right. You, you probably, you probably could have used like a veteran general manager or something. Not necessarily that that was in the payroll because you were running pretty lean. Yeah, I think if, if nothing else, that this business has provided your son with the ability to avoid getting a real job. In his adulthood, I think you've accomplished something. <laughs> well, I don't know if he would say. I don't know if he'd take too kindly to that. But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> well, he's not here to defend himself. So, correct. You know. But it, 
It, it, it definitely, uh, yes. And when I would look at or try to find out what it would take to, to find a manager or a general manager that actually had experience, it just wasn't in the budget. And there was just no way, though maybe, you know, we should have found a way to make it in the budget. But, you know, th- there was a lot going on with that location with regards to it possibly being demolished. The parking, as you know, was horrible. Um, I had a lot of people say we wanted to come eat there, but we couldn't park. But I got to tell you, you know, we had a lot of fun there. We had the Final Four there. We had the Super Bowl there. We had the Astros going to the World Series while we were there. Uh, You know, I miss it, obviously, because, you know, we're way out, way out there now. As you know, you've been there, uh, and and you kind of miss being part of the scene, for lack of a better term. Oh, yeah, no, we're going to talk about that before you get out of here, but but talk to me about uh, the new location of Papa Charlie's at at Cypress Trail Hideout because, um, yeah, in some ways, because having been out there recently, I mean, it seems like it's maybe a better situation for you in terms of a like a work life balance, if nothing else. Yeah, that, that that's a probably a pretty good assessment. At the same time that our lease was almost coming due, and Harvey hit, and and Jim had left to go pursue other things. Uh, I was actually being talked to by these same individuals that opened Cypress trail hideout, but you know, pride is a, is a big pill to swallow. I didn't want to quit. I didn't want to give up what we had built down there. Uh, but realistically what they were offering, uh, looking at it now, it was a great opportunity. And so, uh, that's how we ended up out there. And uh, the address is 25610 Hempstead Road in Cypress, Texas. We're right behind Target. And they had already had things going, construction, and they wanted barbecue. And so the timing was just pretty good for, for me to, to, to move out there. And, uh, you know, they, the, the, the money was in the budget for accountants. And a lot of the things that I had to worry about or that I was really bad at, um, I don't have to worry about anymore. Yeah, Uh you have a your business partner's name escapes me. I apologize. Um, Pat McGinnity. right? So Pat has been a, a veteran of the restaurant business. Worked for H Husa Hospitality USA for a long time, which is the uh, the Sherlock's and local poor folks. So he's a he's a veteran operator by any by any measure. Uh, what is what has the response been like to your barbecue out in Cyprus? Because I. I just feel like there's not a, a, a lot of quality options out in that part of Houston. Uh, we're doing real well, and, and, and one of the things I was going to bring up was I talked to Amy Mills many years ago before I ever uh, started the business about 17th. She's from 17th Street Barbecue, and, and, and one of the things I was just trying to figure everything out, and she said, look, the voices that are always going to, to ring the loudest will be the bloggers and the food critics. And they set the tone across the United States. But the voices that you really have to listen to are the people that are coming in and making your cash register ring. And so, yeah, you know, we're out there. Maybe most people don't know that we're out there, but the response has been very, very well. I mean, we, we, we sell a, a lot of barbecue to a lot of customers daily. And so at the end of the day, that's all that I could ask for. And it, it, it really has put me in a different place from where I was. You know, uh, I don't yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember every time I stopped by the, the restaurant Nito, you would come sit down and we we chat for a few minutes. You just seemed tired. I was exhausted because it was more than uh, I had taken on more than I could actually handle. And and again, pride being a bitter pill, I didn't want to admit that to anyone. So I was just trying to juggle all the balls and and keep everything going. 
but uh, so safe to say you're satisfied with this new operation. Yes. <laughs> That's the shortest answer you've ever given me. <laughs> well, there. I mean, you know, I don't have 100% autonomy um, to do everything that I would like to do, but maybe what I was doing in the past wasn't the correct way to go about it anyway. So sometimes you just run with uh, what you're given and try to make the best of it. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, you mentioned kind of being part of the scene. Papa Charlie's did get some press uh, when you opened, some some attention you were on. Allison Cook's list of the top 100 restaurants. You got a little buzz from Texas Monthly. Um, that stuff that's faded a little bit for you. I think you're you're a little bit off the radar. I I would say it's faded uh, quite a bit. And so where you know where do I stand on that? Obviously, I'm competitive. Um, I would like to sit at the cool kids table again. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of a lot of restaurateurs in this city. Uh, that are making money that have never been sitting at the cool kids table. So uh, it doesn't mean, you know, look, there's probably some people that have been out there when we first opened the doors. And I don't think I was doing as well as I could have because the demand was 10 X from what I was doing at Rusk. So it's taken me a while to try to get wrapped around that and dial things in. And I think the product is a lot better now. I hope that people will come out and try it. Um, but again, I'm I'm at a different place because I can say that I was there uh, and that I did it. And obviously, you would like to have consistency. You would like to have that buzz and be on all those lists every year. But if I'm not, the cash register's ringing. We're making money. There's a different product set out there now, which a lot of it I'm I'm extremely happy with. Chicken fried steak we sell a ton of. The burgers are good. The the loaded baked potatoes that of course for some stupid reason I decided not to serve downtown. We sell a ton of those every day. I mean, uh, the salads are good. It's, it's a different menu. There's a lot more going on. Full bar, live music, giant outdoor space. So I'm okay. I'm in a different place. I'm okay, Eric. Whatever happens, I'm okay. <laughs> You're okay not being, not being one of the cool kids anymore? I wouldn't go that far, but I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is Anybody who follows you on Twitter knows you are not afraid to express an opinion. And I've seen everybody has an opinion about that. I will say I am, I am one of those people. My Twitter feed is really boring. It is links to the articles I publish and maybe the occasional, uh, what I will call half-ass sports take. Uh, I really, I leave that to the professionals here at ESPN 97.5 for the most part. But every now and then I got a, I got a rant about the Astros or the Texans. Uh, you're in a different direction. You're very outspoken. Uh, you're political. What is that? What has your experience been like with that? I mean, do you find that people support you? Do you find you ever gotten somebody that's like, I'm never eating your food again? Sure. Yeah. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, I think, and you've been following me for quite a while. I think I've calmed down quite a bit. That doesn't mean that I've stopped. Uh, but I'm not, as confrontational as I used to be. But at the end of the day, I am who I am. The Papa Charlie's feed was there long before I owned a restaurant. And I don't see any reason to change. And a lot of times, I just say things to stir the pot too, Eric. I, I, I'm just trying to find out what's going on out in, in the Twitterverse uh, with a lot of different ideas. It doesn't necessarily mean that what I'm saying is who I'm voting for or what I think is right or wrong. But I just like to see see what happens out there because 
I don't know. Sometimes you're sitting around waiting for meat to cook for three or four hours, and you might as well try to get something done. So <laughs> you start a little trouble. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't want to ascribe any specific set of political beliefs to you, but but certainly I think your your Twitter feed speaks for itself. Well, I'm uh, ex-military, native Texan, 52-year-old. Small business owner. Small business suburban owner. Suburban living. White guy. Yeah. So, so I mean, I don't I'm know. I'm not saying you're a walking stereotype. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm I, I got a pretty good it. feed on who I think you voted for. <laughs> who, yeah. I, who I think you voted for for president. That, yes. Well, and you know, uh, there's a lot of people that also said, uh, I went on record early saying I may may or may not have, have, have made a mistake. You know, and I'm not. Well, we don't want to get political here. I'm not really no, happy. no, no, and I, I'm not I, happy with the way everything's going. But I, look, I, I am who I am. Uh, I, I hate the fact that somebody would would actually hurt themselves and say, uh, "You have a good product. This is a great environment." But I'm not going to eat here because of who you voted for. Because guess what? I don't care who you voted for. If your food's good, I'm going to come eat it. Well, that that's how I feel, right? Yeah. I don't. Uh, it goes to it. You know, it's funny because. It's not like, even though we may not see eye to eye on every issue, it's not your feed that I find a turnoff so much as it is uh, your personal opinions are kind of one thing. It's, it's when people use their Twitter feed to pontificate about their customer's behavior, like don't wear this type of clothing to my restaurant or don't say these certain things in my presence. That's when I'm like, I'm out. That's too much for me. Yeah, and I, and I, don't, uh, I, I may bring up a Yelp comment every now and uh, then you and you and every other chef just because sometimes they're so extreme that you're reading it going you know i want uh i want a whole brisket to go only lean meat well i i uh, i mean i don't know that's Maybe, not biologically possible correct so uh but i don't do that I, w- I will bring up an extreme but i don't talk about customers in there because look there's a million places they can spend their money in this city if they're eating at my restaurant i appreciate that even if they do leave a silly yelp review <laughs> yeah, you've kind of made your peace with all that. I have. I, I, you know, it's it's all good. I'm getting older. I was, in fact, I was just talking to Patrick about that today because, you know, it's a long story. Uh, I, I asked him about uh, something I saw on Twitter, and he said, "No, no, no, that's all in jest." And I said, "Well, see, the younger me would have called the guy out. Instead, I asked him, hey, what's going on here?' You know, and he said, "No, no, 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 that's that's a joke." Right. Okay, good. Yeah, so, it's it's tricky to be it's tricky to joke on Twitter because. Then it gets screenshotted and not a context. Yes, yeah. this is that's why I don't tweet. Um, so do you have a sense of kind of how you'd like to grow? I mean, do you could there be like a a woodlands a woodlands hideout, a Clear Lake hideout? I mean, yeah. So the so this is an old uh, one of our partners who's basically the real estate guy. He he owned this property. Uh, that 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 land there was part of the old Hempstead Cattle Trail. Uh, Sam Houston camped in that area as he went on to fight uh, Santa Ana. That that house was built in 1937 by the Nitch family, and they actually sold it to uh, to to our people. And so the the original footprint of the house is there. So I think it would be hard to duplicate without the real estate. Uh, but honestly, kind of where I'm at now. I think we could take this barbecue and grill concept. Maybe we downsize it, and we could cookie cutter it and put it somewhere else, probably pretty quick. And there are certainly—I mean, you live uh, out in the Sugarland area. I, I mean, I'll say it. I won't, I won't make you say it. There's no good barbecue in Sugarland. I, I grew—I grew up in that part of town. 
Uh, I grew up eating at Vasa's Barbecue. Which is still there. Which is still there, and, and God bless them, because literally they've been there for more than 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but let's just say it's it's out of trend. Like yeah, we whether, would love- whether it's good, whether you like it or not, whether it's good or bad or not, I whatever. Right. It's not. It's not the central. It's not the central Texas style that's become popular. I would love to go there, and that's actually where I really wanted to go uh, when I knew that I was going to have to depart from Rusk Street. But again, this this opportunity, and you've been it, and for those of you guys that listen that haven't been out there, you should come see it. It's it's a really beautiful facility uh, with a nice stage, and uh, the, it was just looking at it when I first looked at it and it was under construction, I almost didn't get it. But then the more I looked at it and the more I thought about it and just the more it made sense. So that's where we're at. But yeah, if, if we had the land to be able to do that same concept in different parts of the outlying suburbs, I think would kill it because everybody likes good music. I mean, we're packed on the weekends. We're absolutely packed. It's kid friendly. It's dog friendly. There's music playing. It's a good, it's a great environment. Yeah. And that's my kind of sense of what's happening in places like Cyprus is, you know, it's been chain restaurants for a long time, but there is a, a growing interest in locally owned options and better quality stuff and in stuff that you can like these are made by people and these are their names and here they are. I think I think there's a growing interest in that kind of stuff across the Houston area. And so I'm not surprised to hear that you guys are super busy. Even when I went out there for a late lunch on a weekday, it was, you know, quarter full, half full. And there's a lot of places in town where that even inside the loop where that that wouldn't be the case. Right. Well, as you know, I mean, I I text you all the time when, when me and my friends come in from the suburbs. Hey, what's hot? What's happening here and what's there? Well, you know, in my opinion, you're exactly right. If you look at most of the, the suburbs, there's a, a target with all the chains that go in the parking lot. And we, we come into town specifically because we like to go to locally owned good places. And I think if people were to attack the suburbs in the same way, they'd probably, probably do pretty well. Well, Wes, that brings me to the end of my questions, unless you have something else you'd like to talk about. I don't. Come see us. CypressTrailHideout.com is the uh, website, and uh, I'm there every day, uh, still cooking and doing the best that we can to grow Texas barbecue, and specifically Houston barbecue, because we think we're as good as anybody else out there. All right. Well, before I let you go, I have uh, something I call the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Go ahead. What is your favorite ingredient? Well, black pepper. Absolutely. <laughs> What's the first band you ever saw in concert? I want to say The Cure at U of H. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Wow, there's too many to list, but I'll go with, uh, let's say Earl Campbell. <laughs> what is your fast food guilty pleasure that comes from a restaurant with a drive-thru? Uh, Jack in the Box tacos. <laughs> <laughs> and other than Jack in the Box, where's your favorite place to get a taco? Uh, probably Lopez. Great answer. Yeah. Wes, thanks again for being All right. here. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. All right. And you can follow me on Twitter at eSandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. This is also your periodic reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, I always appreciate your comments and your ratings. But like Katie Nolan says, only if it's five stars and only if it's nice. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.